0: okay we're live i think mark can you hear me okay yeah
1: yeah all good
0: cool like how are we doing guys uh welcome to a new episode of the podcast here with mark morton from skilling mining in cork a fellow irish man um yeah mark do you want to just uh a lot of you guys probably know him but if you want to do a quick background intro and just how you got into the bitcoin space
1: yeah so i am the managing director and a co-founder of skilling digital mining which is ireland's only Bitcoin mining company, um, and this year we got uh, a large-scale mining site up and running, co-located with an anaerobic digester, which essentially is a mine running off of biogas. Um, I suppose a small bit more on myself. I got into the crypto space in quotes um, in 2019. Spent quite a long time going down the DeFi rabbit hole and spending too much time on Ethereum. Um, but ultimately pivoted completely back to, to Bitcoin only um, and that pivoted inevitably led me to to getting interested in mining and, and finding some like individuals that wanted to start a, a Bitcoin business, an Irish Bitcoin business at the beginning that inevitably became a Bitcoin, an Irish Bitcoin mining business, which became Skilling Digital Mining. So over the past kind of four years, I've gone from crypto to Bitcoin to Bitcoin mining to um managing a Bitcoin mining company. So that's kind of the, the crash course in, in my little journey over the past while.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we we're just saying before the call, um mad, it's not really related to mining. Well, I suppose maybe there's more miners after, you know, big public miners after capitulating. But um mad few weeks, uh do you have any do you have any thoughts around that? Do you um do you think it's good for Bitcoin? Do you think it's bad for Bitcoin? Um and how does it look for the mining space, I suppose?
1: Yeah, well, I suppose in the short term, you know, Bitcoin is always just going to be kind of tarnished by, you know, the negative connotations of the space as a whole. Um, And I suppose that's kind of the the short term negative spin here, which is unfortunately people aren't able to differentiate between, you know, what FTX is, what Bitcoin is, what other cryptocurrencies are. It all just gets lumped into the one kind of umbrella Um, and it's why the space is just as noisy as it is. And it's kind of as projects have developed over the past kind of two or three years new people coming into the space aren't able to differentiate and as a result of that then when stuff like this happens bitcoin gets you know hit with it um but overall i think it'll probably be you know a long-term good thing as people are now trying to differentiate between you know what is it that ftx was and FTT tokens were you know why did why did they allow FTX to do what they did and how are they different from bitcoin and ethereum and i think i kind of as as an individual went on that same process whereby I was buying a lot of these projects in 2019 and 2020, thinking that they were going to be the next big thing, but wasn't understanding what was going on in the back end and why were they actually important. And so I was reading roadmaps and you know, reading, you know, looking at presentations and decks that the people who had created these tokens were showing. And I can see a lot of overlap with what's happened with FTX, whereby, you know, valuations and words and roadmaps are, are absolutely no representation of what's going on in the background and the actual integrity of the project itself. And I didn't really understand that, to be honest. So when I was investing in a lot of outdoor projects, I was thinking, look, this is what they've promised. This is who they're working with. This is who they're being endorsed by. And I, in my mind, that was a, you know, a strong indicator of that they were going in the right direction. And I think that FTX um, and obviously, the FDT token that's associated with it was just a, a prime, prime example of this. Which is, instead of looking at you know the core, integral details of FDX as a business and FDT as a token, people were instead looking at who is SPF speaking with, you know, who does he associate himself with, and who else is backing this. And so then you kind of get into this vicious cycle of you know, eventually using the word Ponzi dynamics, which is instead of looking at you know what's important here you're just relying on the words of someone before you to, to tell you that it's something that you should be getting involved in and the problem here is that it snowballed so much that you had you know seasoned investors that have you know built their wealth over three decades spouting that ftx was the kind of hail mary of, of crypto projects to be in, in involved in um and then it got to such an extent that you know you're seeing the losses across the industry that that we've seen in the past kind of two or three weeks but as I said at the very beginning, it, it is this kind of trial by fire process that led me to go to Bitcoin only um, and kind of sadly, but hopefully for the better in the long term, a lot of people will go through that same process now and ultimately hopefully the conclusion that they'll come to is that you know Bitcoin is is what I should be focusing my time on.
0: Yeah, look, I think at the end of the day, most people and it's, it's very unfortunate and like sad what's happened, but I think it's kind of was always going to happen. Um, didn't think it would happen like that or in that way, but at some level it, it just had to happen. But um most people only learn by getting burnt, like so you can d- try and do all the you know, preach in the world, Bitcoin only or whatever. Um, but you only really get it. And I was the exact same as yourself with DeFi and all that, like you only really get it after the fact in most cases.
1: Um Yeah, yeah. But I think I think it's it's such a it's almost a funny one, which is whereby I was investing in DeFi. But I was looking to a core group of individuals to tell me where the project was going, and then basing my my kind of interest and investment in that project based off of what this core group was telling me they were doing. Even though what I was thought I was investing in was DeFi, and I think it's it's just kind of a, a kind of mad you know circular loop here, which is you know you are seeing some people conclude you know oh this is better for DeFi you know because this will do away with centralized you know exchanges or centralized entities like SBF and Alameda um, and FTX and they're not even questioning you know who's in the back end of this DeFi project in quotes that I'm investing in which is you know a complete conflict of interest there which is you think that this is where DeFi will now excel and you're not even kind of acknowledging that how decentralized really is this DeFi project that I'm investing in. Um, and I'm like hoping that, you know, people will kind of start to kind of look at that a bit more, which is that's exactly what I was doing, which is I was investing in DeFi, but it, actually what I was investing in was centralized DeFi's projects, which is just, you know, in reality, kind of complete nonsense to an extent.
0: Yeah, 100 percent. Look, even if God, we, we can touch on this later, with like proof of stake and validators and all that. But like, even if it's maybe on some of those projects are maybe on some level decentralized at the moment and that's assuming the fundamentals of the projects are not flawed um but like as the exchanges and reg- and big institutions start controlling more of the validating stake and um, eventually the regulators can just come in and just say you know guys you're doing this now and that will be it like would you agree with that actually with that do you think that's
1: accurate assessment yeah, I think like in in general, like to an extent, like what I what I realized over the course of the past four years is that decentralization is the, the most you know important part, and I think that unfortunately it's kind of a harsh statement, but like people in my mind are, are the kind of biggest single point of failure for some of these projects, which is you know even if they have the best intentions, and that's something that I saw with a lot of DeFi projects, which is even if the people have the best intentions, and I think sometimes it is harsh to call you know try playing everyone as scammers in the space because there are people that try to build projects with the best of intentions but ultimately they might run out of investment they might run out of motivation you know they might run out of kind of ideas as to where to bring the project next and inevitably that project fails because even though it was decentralized in quotes it was relying on a core group of people to keep up the funding to keep getting new vcs in to kind of fund the next step as to where the project would go and ultimately the project died um, and then I and kind I of think when I come back to Bitcoin, which is that Bitcoin ultimately removes that dependence on any one group of people, I and mean, that's why this is the kind of whole anti-fragile nature. Which is you were talking about regulation is that when people try to regulate this whole space, given what's gone on, I think they'll kind of come to the conclusion that you know Bitcoin is a network, and the rest of these things are are almost kind of companies. But I think that's also kind of just a weak argument in general when people start spouting the kind of whole securities aspect of these DeFi projects. I think irrespective of way before regulation, centralized entities controlling these projects will be the single point of failure that ultimately brings them down in the end prior to them being regulated. You know, I think the whole point of this space and it's something that I do agree with when people start spouting this whole idea about DeFi projects being securities is that we're kind of on the whole idea and issue was a bit of a cypherpunk movement, and if, if you're kind of going to securities and regulators as a as a win for Bitcoin against these things, I think it's kind of a bit of a cop out as well. So I, I think I tried to remove that and just say that, irrespective of the regulation that's coming, the people in these projects will, in my mind, ultimately probably be one of the kind of points of failure that bring bring them down. Yeah,
0: yeah, hundred percent. I I think as well though that like you know the way like all the don't want to say the small guys but you know the normal people in the space who aren't your vc uh you know silicon valley backers or whatever so just think of ftx like those guys all the projects they were put money into it's more like they're just putting money into some kind of story and figuring out can they make money off a token pump off it and it's like one of one of the mad things i heard with ftx now to be honest i'm not totally sure just caveat that if this is totally accurate you might have more insight in this. Um, I think it is, though. But like they were doing, they were basically taking user funds to make investments in projects, taking FTX user funds to make investment in projects through Alameda, and then they were basically saying that those projects had to put the funds back on the exchange that they just made the investment in. Yeah. Um, and it's like, even though the funds are back on the stage on on the exchange, they also now have some token that they're going to be pumping on the exchange. And then FTX would just sell the token or Alameda into the pump then. And it's yeah. all like, you know, the way me and you were talking here about decentralization and all that, it's like, do those people actually really care about any of this at all? Or is it just like, you know, is it just what the story that um, can be sold to to do the pump? Like, yeah, what do you think of that?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's just when, when there's so little barriers to entry, you know, there was nothing stopping this happening, you know, over and over and over again. And then I think it goes back to having, unfortunately, having new investors coming into the space, which were the retail traders, not understanding what was important and basing their investments on on roadmaps and what they were being told to invest in. You know, which is this whole idea of you know pump and dump scams, which is instead of people doing their due diligence and kind of thinking, you know, what's really important. Which in my mind now is decentralization and longevity, anti-fragility, all of these things. But when I first got into the space, it was you know, who's going to partner with Amazon? You know, who's going to change sh- shipping? Who's going to get, you know, like, who's rumored to be partnering with, you know, Coca-Cola on changing their, you know, entire system via blockchain? You know, that's what I was looking at. And I think that's, that's like, part of the reason that these things still work for these people. Um, but I think that this is that whole narrative of, of move move fast and break things. The reason they're able to move fast and break things is because they have unsuspecting retail traders that will take the other side of that um unfortunately but i think then you know when you look at bitcoin it's been created in a way that it was a one-off and i didn't realize that at the beginning i did also think that bitcoin was the boring one amongst all these and that this whole idea of kind of you've one shot at making a decentralized network and doing it correctly and having a network that will stay you know anti-fragile for decades and decades and decades wasn't what interested me at the beginning it was all these other kind of concepts um and unfortunately that is what allowed you know them to continuously spin up new tokens you know garner interest by saying you know this is the next big thing and they're going to partner with these individuals and they're going to revolutionize this you know traditional financial system and ultimately they hadn't plans to do none of that they were just able to make their quick money and and, and be gone again so i think there's so many kind of different aspects to, to what went on and unfortunately it was just as i said earlier the snowball effect of so many different kind of wrongdoings kind of got us to where we are now which is the whole thing inevitably falling apart yeah yeah
0: totally agree um but uh yeah the the partner with like coca-cola or something that's a good one like you know <laughs> like it's just like no one has to tell you even what it means in any way shape, no, or no, no. it's like oh we, we've done a partnership with coca-cola like and it could be like an email from coke to say yeah we might look at this like you know yeah it's like, we'll,
1: re- we'll read your slide deck that you sent us you know what i mean but it, it, to me it, but that's just my biggest problem which is that's the stuff that got me into the space at the beginning and it's something that i wasted you know 18 months you know to two years on you know probably 18 months on a, thereabouts uh before realizing you know what am i actually investing in here you know as in i i think i'm reading roadmaps i think these things are going to change the world but i don't even know who created them you know you see all these things coming up which are you know like you'll have they'll spin up a name and it'll be like you know blockchain labs or whatever it might be i don't know if that's actually a thing i'm just saying that There'll be someone in the background that I don't even know who they are. You know, as I said before, someone that could be five guys that know solidity, but they were good enough to come up with a token and tokenomics. And then they were able to spin up, you know, 20 grand between each other to put out a press release. And and that's like in a lot of instances, that's all it takes to kind of get the ball rolling. Um, but this was no I knew none of this. And I think that's kind of a, a problem. And I think, but as you said earlier, which is like, what's the outcome of this? It's people kind of hopefully being more skeptical of what they're looking at and not taking everything at face value. And then going back to first principles and saying, God, I've spent I've invested I have a, a portfolio here of 30 altcoins that four of them apparently were all going to revolutionize the same system and none of them did it and seven other ones are meant to do this and it's been three years and you know the discord is basically you know tumbleweed so like what have i actually been buying what have i been investing in what's actually important here and unfortunately some people will probably leave the space for good and i think that is one negative kind of takeaway from this is that people will feel so hard done by and so burnt by what's gone on over the past number of months and years that they'll leave and never come back. But there will be some that will hopefully go away and say, look, what's important? And I think you are seeing that actually on Twitter at the moment, whereby you're seeing people kind of think about this whole thing and say, look, okay, I've been a big advocate for for DeFi and for a number of these altcoins. But I think now what I'm going to do is just focus on Bitcoin and Bitcoin only. And you're seeing a lot of people push back against that. But I think that like that is what I'm hoping is, is the outcome for this. But I suppose only time will tell. You know, you could fast forward two years and, you know, the altcoin market comes back booming again because you have more unsuspecting individuals coming in, not quite understanding what they get themselves into. But, you know, we'll see. Yeah, but look, hopefully the cohort of people
0: who really know, I don't sound arrogant, like, but who've been through all this before and can kind of speak to it, there's more people to speak to this that hopefully won't be as effective next time. But look, maybe this is just going to keep happening after every, like, Bitcoin happens. So, yeah, who knows? Yeah. Um, but okay so mining like this conversation you know that I wanted to talk about like for ages <laughs> just get yeah. like really deep into the mining um well not really deep but just uh you know just cover everything um mining nodes all that good stuff uh like 51% attacks that kind of thing a lot of people in bitcoin i think understand it uh, or think they understand it um or claim to but have a lot of difficulty uh explaining it so like i've heard you explain this succinctly like really well a lot of times um so look i I suppose um just the first question around this is just mining explain this most simple terms like how do you think about it how do you how do you explain it to someone that doesn't really understand
1: yeah well my my general go-to is this whole concept of the blockchain itself being kind of just a conveyor belt of, of boxes you know Slowly but surely moving along in the conveyor belt. And as the kind of next block appears or the next box, um, that block will have, you know, a header at the top of it that essentially is almost like I imagine a combination code on a lock. Um, and what all the machines are doing, which are ASICs, you know, any mining machine, you know, S19J Pros, if people have heard of that word before, all these machines are doing all around the world when you see these big facilities of kind of worrying machines is that they're just firing guesses at that header. In order to get the correct guess in order for the combination code to be unlocked that then allows that block to be added to the blockchain and all this process just happens you know 24 hours a day seven days a week um, and it's almost just like a consistent lottery so this happens every 10 minutes so a new block will appear on average every 10 minutes with a new header at the top that ultimately kind of needs to be guessed um, and as soon as that uh, header is guessed or that combination code is guessed that block will be added and we'll be on to the next lottery and this lottery just repeats constantly every 10 minutes and has done so for the past you know 13 years so in, in simplest terms that's all that's happening so a lot of kind of media outlets try frame it um, as solving complex maths equations but when i first got into the space one thing that really confused me is that i thought then okay well, well what happens if a really old machine wins a block you know because you hear the phrase wins a block i was thinking well surely a, a machine that came out seven or eight years ago Will then kind of block up the blockchain and spend ages trying to solve this complex math equation but what i didn't realize is that when you get on the skin of it there's nothing being solved there's no complex math equation that takes time it's simply a guess so a brand new machine that's 100 terahashes or a really old machine that's from you know 2016 if either one of them guesses correctly that's it that's the lottery over and we go on to the next 10 minute block period um so that's kind of generally what i tried to Away with which is this whole idea of solving complex math equations because I remember that being a a kind of stumbling block for me. It's literally just a lottery, and these machines are guessing,
0: yeah. Um, and then so they're guessing if you have a really old machine, uh, what can you do then? I presume you can rather than just solar mine, you can put it in the mining pools. So, a lot of people are gonna say, uh, what are my what's the point of mining pools? How do they work?
1: Yeah, so essentially, a mining pool will, will. they were created essentially to aggregate guesses together so there was a stage where people would mine solo in quotes whereby you could switch on a machine um, and it would start firing guesses you know link the bitcoin core Um, but the key problem there is that you could wait you know 10 years before you ever win a block you know so you could have your machine on pulling energy costing you money um, and you might win nothing and so pools came along and said look well what happens if we Basically, create like you know, you do a syndicate for the lottery, you know, where your office might all chip in some money, and if someone wins, then you get a share. And it's this very, very similar kind of idea, which is what mining pools do: is they aggregate guesses together from machines all over the world. Um, and if someone else in the pool wins, so if a different machine wins, you get a cut of that Bitcoin block reward that the pool wins. But that Bitcoin block reward that you get is just proportionate to the amount of guesses that you sent. Um, so, if, for instance, you know, a, a pool might have a thousand terahashes. Which is 10 brand new S19s, hundred terash S19s. Um, in reality, a pool will have thousands and thousands and thousands of terahashes, but for simplicity's sake, we'll just say that a pool has a thousand terahashes in there. If I only have one machine running in here and nine others have machines all over the world, if anyone else in the pool wins, then I'll get 10% of the 6.25 Bitcoin. Um, and that just essentially happens. What well, that's essentially what the pool does, is aggregate guesses together. Um, and it allows you to smooth out your revenue curve. So instead of you winning one block every 17 years, um, the pool itself might win 10 blocks a day, and you might get 0. 0.0003 Bitcoin consistently every single day. And it just allows you, as a, as a as a miner, to smooth out your revenue curve, which then allows you to do some financial modeling and say, you know, when on average will I probably pay this machine back? Um, so that's kind of their, their core input there. Yeah,
0: because otherwise, like, if you had
1: if you're going solo on
0: it you could be like you know you might have to mine like for five years or something maybe even long, maybe forever <laughs> before yeah, you hit you any block so, and like might get annoying, exactly yeah so this is yeah so it allows to um aggregate as a percentage of the hash rate in that pool uh for when the box are mine so brilliant yeah. so just then um so between the mining Mining and nodes. So a lot of people get confused here. Like even for a long time, up until about 2017, mm-hmm. a lot of people kind of considered like the miners to be the nodes. It wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. that the miners should make all his decisions. Um, And blo- Block Size Wars is a great book talking about all this by Jonathan Beer. But um, like, so you have the mining. What is the relationship between mining and nodes? How, how would you, uh, so as first, firstly, like what are nodes? And then what's the relationship between them?
1: Yeah, so well, in simplest terms, a, a node is just anything that has, or any kind of computer program is the way I like to say that has a full copy of, of the Bitcoin ledger. Um, and it's basically more so of a, of a consensus method that allows you to look back over the, the blockchain from its you know creation in 2009 to now and say that every single block has been added to the blockchain as it should. Um, and they're kind of the gatekeepers that ensure that that blockchain is consistently being added. Blocks are being consistently added in the correct manner. Um, but what mining is more so is, is a civil mechanism. So there's a key kind of difference there, which is mining is more of a civil mechanism. Um, and, and the nodes kind of represent a conses- consensus mechanism. What a civil mechanism essentially is, is it's a manner in which you can encourage individuals that are participating in the network and in, you know running the network to behave in a, in, in a proper manner. They're essentially your method of having skin in the game, um, and that's essentially what mining is. So, the proof-of-work civil mechanism is that I have to buy a machine, I have to then go find energy, I then have to go pay for that energy, and then that's my skin in the game in order to be, a, you know, a miner, and ensure that I behave correctly and build blocks correctly and and participate as I should. Um, and then essentially, so how the mining process essentially works is that you know a pool actually constructs the block. So if you have all the miners in the pool, a pool will construct the block. They'll put all the transactions in that occurred in that 10-minute period, for example. And as soon as that block is created and mined, it will broadcast that block. And what the nodes will do is they'll essentially say, yeah, that was done correctly, and it'll let it get added to the blockchain. So there, you know, it's basically kind of the best way that you can decorrelate miners and nodes and ensure that both are being kept in check, essentially. Yeah, and
0: it, like if the miners are if the block is broadcasted and the miners detect it as fraudulent, whatever they reject, or sorry, the nodes detect it as fraudulent, they reject it. And then basically all the nodes are checking that that block is correct. They're all talking to each other to mate. Like they, they, they have the rules of how the network operates as such.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And it's as uh, the key thing there, as I said earlier, which is that your simple mechanism in this instance is that if a miner was to expend all that energy, were to buy all those machines and were to then behave in an incorrect manner, um and that block was then rejected by the nodes that all that capital expenditure would then be wasted so that's kind of the key aspect there which is why would a miner behave you know in a way that they shouldn't if they have their skin in the game as they do um and so it's kind of the, the manner in which they interact is kind of the key important part of maintaining that blockchain and encouraging all participants in the blockchain to maintain the integrity of the chain of truth which is literally the blockchain itself so they're then working in tandem to make sure that that's done correctly
0: Hundred um, percent. That's a great explanation. So, like, is there, is there any way um, like this could be corrupted? This whole process, so kind of the incentive flywheel could break. Or I know what you said there that um, there's no incentive as such for them to act against their own network. Um, but like, I don't know. A lot of people might say, like, what if the state just turns around and they say they're gonna ban proof of work? They want to stop. Is there any way this whole thing can be stopped? In
1: your view? Yeah, I think the kind of best things that I like to look back on is just kind of real-life examples, essentially, which is, you know, the proof-of-work process. And, you know, as you alluded to earlier, the first one is just being a 51% attack, whereby someone tries to get 51% of the global hash rate. Um, And when they do, then that will give them power to dictate blocks in any manner that they wish. And that could be... Trying to undo the blockchain itself and go back and change transactions that have already happened but it could be something much much simpler whereby if someone had 51 percent global hash rate and they were the ones constructing and forming blocks and they could essentially decide to include no transactions at all every single time that as a block appeared which obviously would block up the the entire network itself and allow people to be you know they'll be unable then to transact on the blockchain Um, but i suppose the kind of key factor of that and the key example that we have is firstly you have china that attempted to ban it um, and as soon as that ban happened people you know we saw the global hash rate plummet um and you saw people then start referencing you know how much money would it take you to buy 51 percent of the global hash rate when it's kind of in this weakened state and attack the network but um, ultimately nothing happened anywhere close to that because another kind of key aspect of the proof of work process is this kind of real world link which is in order for you to participate in the proof of work process and the Bitcoin network, you logistically need to find the energy, you need to purchase the machines, you need to set up your mining farm, and then you need to go through the process of 51% attacking Bitcoin network. So as much as people will put on a figure, which would say, look, if you were to buy all the machines in order to get 51% of global hash rate, it'll cost you X amount. You know, You see people trying to run these figures. You then also need to work through the logistics of actually doing that, which is, building a facility large enough to run the machines and then having energy cheap enough to keep that, those machines running in order to conduct the attack so i think ultimately it's a lot lot harder than people kind of let on and as much as people try to put figures on a 51% attack it doesn't really materialize um, but in a in simpler terms as you kind of said earlier which is this whole concept of, of regulation with bitcoin itself and proof of work being you know as centralized in my mind as it is you had someone like china step up and say look we're going to ban this process completely hash rate seemingly left you know you saw china, the global hash rate plummeted you saw that apparently hash rate in china went to zero another study was conducted 6 months later and it seems like china has you know 15% to 20% of the global hash rate again so, you know, banning this as a process is extremely, extremely difficult. Um, and as an attack vector, you know, I don't think it, it merits as much worry as as people kind of think it does. Yeah.
0: And I suppose the other thing as well, like you can't, you can't really hide it, can you? Like you, Because the point is, if it's going to take a very long time to develop the capability to mount a 51% attack, and it's assuming that the network... You know the cyber hornets nest or whatever sailor calls it doesn't take steps to you know just outright ban all those miners from interacting with it or something is that, that correct
1: yeah well i suppose like even before you get into anything like that I just logistically it's just so difficult you know like obviously so the first kind of thing people say is a lot to stop a, a government organization printing the money to then go buy the machines but like you know you talk to anyone you know saying that you're going to go out and buy that many machines is fine in practice but you know reaching out to you know a bit main or a watts minor or now intel are getting in the nicks and saying you know we'll take an order for a couple of hundred thousand machines you know logistically getting your hands on them and then getting to the location that you need that has the cheap electricity and then being able to construct a facility large enough in order to conduct a 51 attack is just extremely extremely difficult so at this stage i don't even really look when people try to put a monetary value on it, I think that the logistical difficulties of conducting a 51% attack is just so much more important than the kind of cost of accumulating the hardware, because I think ultimately the cost of accumulating the hardware is irrelevant, because I think it's so difficult to accumulate that hardware anyway, that conducting the attack is is, is ultimately too difficult.
0: Yeah, so, and just correct me here Like. I, I'm definitely not an expert in mining, but like as well, my understanding is that 51% attack it's not even really like kicked out to, to be what it's meant people say it is, in that like all you can do with a fifty-one percent attack is you can you don't, the the miners that control the fifty one percent hash rate can choose to censor certain blocks. Um, so or from certain wallet addresses so like if you if you, for example china or the us had control 51 percent network they could say they don't like mark or they don't like me and they're not going to process transactions from that um that wallet um that's one part and the other thing is that they can only spend double spend their own bitcoin so they can't just rob everyone's wallets
1: everywhere um yeah or, yeah i is think it, ultimately what you're getting at is like this is just this like in my mind This the only purpose, really, of a fifty-one percent attack would be to bring down the network itself. It wouldn't be a profit, okay, profiteering venture. You know, like ultimately, if 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 Bitcoin was fifty-one percent attacked and something like this happened, Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin would, would 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 plummet as a result. You know, you would be essentially putting all of this infrastructure, all of this capital in to kill the network because its whole point, its its whole kind of. 13 year reign has been kind of pride on the fact that it's decentralized it's anti-fragile it'll run for decades and so if you were to have someone to come along and conduct an attack like that i personally feel like their only motive would be to basically remove anyone's kind of conviction in it as a network um because as soon as you then try profiteer off it you're trying to prop you know you're trying to earn profit on a network that you've inadvertently killed you know that's essentially kind of my conclusion to it so there's a lot of different kind of areas in which you can try earn you know revenue from what you've done but in doing so you will have essentially taken down the network that you're trying to prop to your own. so i think that that's kind of what you're getting at there which is all these different kind of areas you can go into will ultimately be kind of irrelevant because what you've done is is kind of bring the network to an end yeah
0: yeah yeah no it d- definitely is um and then, like, look, even still, like a fifty-one, like just hypothetically, even like someone did get fifty-one percent for a little while or whatever, like it doesn't mean that, like you know, it's only going to work fifty-one percent the of time for when every ten minutes. So forty-nine percent of the time, it's not even going to be effective, and it's going to cost you more and more to keep trying to institute that.
1: Is is that correct? yeah well the, 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 there's so many different factors you know going on at any given moment whereby you know you're assuming that your 51 percent will stay 51 percent as well you know it, it's not the hash rate isn't just a hard and fast figure which is you've seen the way the network has grown for you know x number of months which is you could set out now and you'll say look we need this much capital we need to build a facility this big And then we'll own 51% of the network. If you did that two years ago when the China ban happened and said, look, this is the optimum moment for us to 51% attack the network because global hash rate has fallen by 50%, by the time you've gone and done and gone through all those logistical hurdles, the network is now doubled in size. So your 51% is also doubled. So this whole kind of idea of of aiming for a target of getting 51% is also logistically very, very difficult because what you're seeing at the moment is that from a mining perspective hash rate has just been unrelenting you know every single week to well on average you're seeing every single um two-week period every difficulty adjustment has just been up and up and up and up and up so if you're there trying to plan a network or a 51 attack for 18 months to two years time you know you could be working toward a figure that is basically worthless when you actually get to it so i think it's just logistically so so hard to actually make happen Yes, yeah, exponentially running away from you, like <laughs> exactly, um, literally, exactly, yeah. Um,
0: so just on this kind of thing, like because when you hear fifty-one percent attacks banded about, you talk about you, you know, you hear it with the mining pools. Um, so like, I think there's only like what ten or twelve big mining pools. So people do talk about that, but it doesn't take into account that you can just easily, even if now I know I'm kind of really harping on this now, but like even if just to clear all doubt for anyone listening. Yeah. But even if like a mining pool did have a huge amount of hash rate, like you can just essentially switch your miner to a different pool, can't you? Like, so if you're mining with like slush pool or whatever, you can just say, oh, they're trying to do this. I don't I don't agree with that. And then you just put it to a different pool.
1: Yeah, So well, so like in, in those instances, the way it would work is that there's one caveat to that, which is obviously a pool doesn't need 51% the hash rate to win a block and then deem that block opac compliant you Mm. know so they could like a manner in which a pool could try to be opac compliant is just the simplest way to do it generally is just include no transactions so i won't name pools but if you're whatever pool and you decide look we have people breathing in our next year to be opac compliant we're going to consistently put out block templates that are empty so then there's no way that we won't be opac compliant but as you said which is the network in Bitcoin will ultimately dictate the demand for, for anything. So you saw a pool there a couple of weeks ago, which was, there was rumors of them halting withdrawals from the pool accounts. Instantly, hash rate just dive-bombed. I think they that pool's hash rate halved in something like a week or two or, or less. So I, uh, what you're getting at there, which is there's no kind of dependence on you staying within a pool. As soon as a pool starts demonstrating kind of any kind of bad acting um or negative connotations around you know fungibility or you know old compliance or whatever it might be, hash rate can just instantly be diverted somewhere else. So you're not gonna set on, on on staying in any given pool if that if something like that was to materialize.
0: Okay. So just to touch on that and then we, we can just compare it to Ethereum then because I I, I understand is like this is a much bigger deal in Ethereum than it is uh in Bitcoin like with proof of work. So just on OFAC compliance. Um at the end of the day, it so how, how to explain this now, so or how to ask it with time. So, the Bitcoin block subsidy is obviously quite large at the moment. Like, what is it that miners may it's like 95% from the block subsidy, 5% from fees? Is that correct? Roughly, like, I, like
1: yeah, it's, it's it's the block subsidies, yeah, the 99 whatever percent it is, it's the majority of it. The fees at the moment are essentially minimal in comparison to what the block subsidy is offering you. Yeah,
0: so my, my understanding here is that it's kind of this is a, another amazing incentive flywheel that's like Satoshi put into Bitcoin that I don't know was it intentional or not, but with time it becomes increasingly unprofitable to uh censor. So say if there's an OFAC compliant pool in 20 years from now and miners are getting 50% of their hash rate from fees, and OFAC mm-hmm. are saying that 25% of that uh 50 you can't uh interact with because they're not OFAC compliant what that would mean for that 25 percent, they'll be willing to pay more and more fees but miners in the pool won't get access to that revenue so they'll be incentivized to switch away from OFAC compliant blocks is that correct
1: yeah, essentially, what you've kind of summed up is that as the block subsidy withers away, you're getting to a stage where beggars can't be choosers. You know, in terms of the, the transactions that they include. So exactly as you said, which is almost like a built-in, you know, you know mechanism in itself. Which is if fees themselves are becoming increasingly important for the profitability of a miner, a miner is going to be more and more kind of worried about the fact that any given pool that they're interacting with is censoring transactions and refusing to include them. So as you said which is if you're in a bear market in one or two cycles time um where you have a block reward that's you know low because the price of bitcoin is isn't quite as representative of the block subsidy and fees are taking up a lot of your revenue the last thing you're going to want is someone stepping in and turning half that revenue away so exactly as you said there there's this kind of automatic mechanism whereby you know as fees become more and more important the less kind of likely it is that a miner is going to step in and say okay this censoring can go on. And that's where they'll be simply putting pressures on pools to stop doing what they're doing. Or they, as you said earlier, they'll just revert away and start sending hash rate to a different pool that isn't partaking in that kind of compliance.
0: Yeah, so I suppose where I'm going with this is like, and what a lot of people fear that, because the US mining industry is getting quite large in the US. I think it's like around 30% or it's about that at the moment, is it? Mm-hmm um of global uh, hash i
1: think yeah, yeah thereabouts
0: yeah yeah global hash rate is that the us government comes in and says that those miners can only mine OFAC compliant costs <laughs> or blocks but i suppose what we just said there was that if 20 30 years from now they are trying to do that geez we'll be old men then <laughs> But uh, 20, 30 yeah. 20 30, well we won't be i suppose but we're getting there um 2030 years from now um those miners will be taking a massive like they'll basically be it'd be a massively anti competitive, it'd be a huge competitive disadvantage for them not being able to access those blocks and it'd be an advantage to miners in jurisdictions that could access those wanted to mine those yeah. blocks. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The only the only caveat I have in mind there though, which is as fees become you know better, you know, greater, as the fee representation becomes higher and higher, essentially what that encourages, and it's something that you're seeing already um, on Ethereum because they have such high fees based on, you know, how much network participation and activity that they have. You have something called, you know, maximum extractable value. And that's why you have something like flashbots that comes along in Ethereum, which is almost the encouraging of front running and essentially trying to profit maximize from fees. And so what that brings along is, as fees become increasingly important on Bitcoin and what people think is that fees are are going to be increasingly important for the security of the network, we're hoping that fees are going to continue to increase. But in doing so, as the fee market um, for Bitcoin increases, that will then encourage centralized entities to come along and try profit maximize off of that. And those centralized entities, like the instance for flashbots, there's kind of a, conflict of interest there which is the search for you know maximal value from transactions will then lead to centralized entities coming along and helping you with that but they will be the entities that people go to to try implement old that compliance and that's what you're seeing at the moment with um flashbots and mev on ethereum so basically flashbots are helping a lot of these operators to maximize their fee revenue But they're also the ones that are dictating, you know, is this OFAC compliant or not? Um, So you kind of have a small bit of a conflict of interest there, which is we need Bitcoin fees to increase. Well, that's obviously open to interpretation as well, but we might want Bitcoin fees to increase. But as soon as you do that and you start creating a, a fee market, essentially, that's when you start seeing centralized entities getting involved and trying to maximize that market and becoming kind of an attack vector in themselves, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, okay uh, to be honest i don't have a great understanding of mev so as he says maximum extractable value ex- maximum extractable um value blocks and i know they're a bigger deal on ETH because it's, it's to do with smart contracts isn't it and bitcoin doesn't have much um well
1: it's just essentially that there's more value to be extracted from the blocks given the amount of fees that are going on so there's more value to be extracted from cherry picking certain transactions and including them to in order to get more revenue whereas on bitcoin as i said earlier you know beggars can't be choosers there's currently no real market on bitcoin for trying to extract value from the transaction fees because there isn't a lot of them you know on 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 certain blocks that you might see you know there could be the block subsidy is 6.25 bitcoin and the transaction fee revenue on that block is you know 0.005 know so there is no real market and trying to extract further value from that. Um, But as that market increases, you know, like any other you know open market, that's where people will try and extract value from it. But on on Ethereum, it's much, much more popular because you have much more fees to essentially work with and have a market for. Um, So that's what you're seeing at the moment, which is something like FlashBots coming along. And I think to the best of my knowledge, they're you know operating relays that relays that will cherry pick transactions to try and include in order to extract the most value for um a validator for example okay
0: and could that be like so instead of say could that be kind of perverse somehow like could the it's kind i think you kind of already answered but could the regulator come in or whatever and say um to those miners then 20 30 years from now in the us just hypothetically um i know there's a lot of other factors at play here as well but could they say? could could they basically pay a premium to the miners for not including transit so that they could say that do not include OFAC and we'll reimburse you for doing so to keep you competitive?
1: Yeah, it's, I, th- I think you can, to be honest. You like, see, the thing is at the moment with, you know, Ethereum, you don't know what's going on in the background, you know, so th- you don't really know what the incentive is for someone wanting to include certain transactions. Well, sorry, like that,
0: j- j- just to talk,
1: talk about Bitcoin specifically here as opposed to Ethereum so with regard to someone coming along and saying you know include that and kind of breathing down their neck and saying look we'll reimburse you if you don't include transactions from here and reaching out to a bitcoin equivalent of Flashbots, essentially yeah something like that yeah yeah but th- 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 there definitely is like, so that's but that's as i said earlier which is until the fees increase there's no kind of incentive for someone to be involved in that market but as soon as that market emerges that becomes an attack vector to an extent you know, that's where you have the complexity mm-hmm. so any like anything on ethereum I always think of or anything on any kind of blockchain project blockchain and goats or on Bitcoin the reason it's the simplicity is better is because as soon as you add more complexity you're increasing the attack vector on on the kind of project as a whole or on the network as a whole and that's just something worth thinking about because no one really knows how this is going to play out and it's kind of why you have people getting involved now talking about the likes of, of stratum v2 etc as you've kind of mentioned before which is giving miners the ability to build the block templates themselves. So that's kind of a a key factor here that people are trying to implement with Stratum v2, which is the manner in which blocks are formed. So at the moment, the pools build the blocks um, and they might be interacting with someone like Flashbots to say, you know, how should we build this? Just just as a very, very simple terms, you know, how should we build this in order to extract the most value? So that currently doesn't exist really on, on Bitcoin at all. There'd be no reason for it to exist. Um, So the the pools at the moment build the block templates. They'll decide what transactions go in. Um, But with something like Stratum V2, what will happen is miners will be able to pick the block template themselves. So you're basically giving the power back to the individual to an extent. And then the influence that these centralized entities or someone kind of bringing down the neck of the likes of a flashbots has is a bit more diminished because you could have an individual miner that isn't focusing on something like that. You know, they're just building blocks as they should. Um, so all of this is kind of, you know, going on at once. And as you said, when you think about 30 years time, it's always so difficult. You know, we're only kind of 13 years into this. And you're talking about 30 years time to see, you know, how the market will develop and how these kind of mechanisms will change in order to maintain the integrity of the network itself.
0: Yeah, so th- and th- that was something I was thinking about yeah, earlier before the quote, like Stratton V2. Where, um is it, like, is there an economic incentive for miners to to adopt this or is it just kind of purely on a like this would be better for the network
1: yeah see that's that's kind of you know when you you talk about hurdles of kind of stratum v2 that's kind of one that kind of sticks out in my mind at the moment which is as a pool you know a kind of key hurdle forward is that as a miner and as individuals and as people who care about the network we would want it implemented um but as a pool and if you're thinking long term you might not want that implemented and ultimately it'll be up to the pool to implement stratum v2 so that is kind of a you know a little hurdle there, whereby they might be thinking, look, why would I give away this you know incentive? Because in ten years' time, you know, managing and constructing blocks ourselves could be a, a key part of, of of our business, you know, and in a manner in which we can extract value. So that is kind of a kind of another conflict of interest there, which is Stratum v two is definitely better for the network because it helps that whole decentralization aspect. Whereby if you're giving empowering the miner and not the pool. You kind of remove that that problem so at the moment when you think about attack vectors on bitcoin really um you have the mining infrastructure itself so you don't know, have someone approaching a mining facility and saying you know stop stop doing what you're doing turn off all your mining facility or you you know you uh, approach the pools in whatever jurisdiction that they're in um and say cease operations or start being opac compliant or we're going to shut you down um, and so that's where strata V2 is, is pretty important because when you start empowering the miners to essentially almost be like a pool of their own to an extent, you know, you're giving them the ability to build block templates themselves. That takes care of that. And then you're also seeing the decentralization of the hash rate naturally. So you're seeing containerized mining, which is obviously what we do at Skilling, also coming to the fore here across, you know, whether it be farms in Ireland, whether it be oil and gas fields in the U.S., you're seeing the infrastructure decentralize, and what Stratum v two I think will help is you'll start to see the block construction and the block template building decentralize as well. And you're just all you're trying to do at any given moment, obviously on Bitcoin, is just remove as many attack vectors as you possibly can. Um, and I think Stratum v two is kind of a right step in in, in that direction.
0: Mm-hmm. So, like, could could the miners like could they get together? Um... Like i suppose on a prorata basis to so say skilling got together with like i don't know hot eight and all the other big miners and mm-hmm. said right we are now only using stratum v2 uh like pools sort of the first thing like is so i suppose like is there would there be a, on a prorata basis so obviously if there's less less hash rate in the pool you're not going to get um like it puts pressure on the pool like liquidity liquidity wise to you know until it starts actually finding blocks but um could like yeah i suppose on a prorated basis is there any economic benefit because I, I suppose my thing here is like is this just something because I, I don't know i'm not mining is this just something that everyone talks about in bitcoin is this ever really going to come like is there any reason for miners to drive this is what i'm what i'm saying
1: yeah, like I suppose when I first started hearing about, like, I was hearing about Stratum V2 when I got into the space, you know, in 2019, like 2020, I was listening to podcasts about it and I was reading about it. Um, and fast forward, you know, basically three years now, slightly more at this point, and, you know, it still hasn't been implemented. Um, so I think it's as you're alluding to, which is, you know, what is the kind of incentive to implement it? Um, like, for instance, I haven't, you know, actively interacted with Stratum V2 myself yet. Um, and I think the kind of next hurdle is is just trying to onboard people in order to, to kind of foresee the pressure that's now building in Ethereum. And I think Ethereum is a good litmus test for, you know, OFAC compliance. Because I think ultimately it depends on what the incentives are of the miner themselves. You know, some miners, and you've kind of already seen it already. I think we've spoken, you know, we've spoken about it before, which is some large scale U.S. miners have tried to sneak in stuff which is you know this block is old fact compliance or this block is green you know whatever it might be um and so you might have mining pools saying look we're going to implement this because we don't like where the network is heading with stuff like that because there are you know a number of pools that have their incentives in the right place and if it's a better thing for the network and if it's a better thing for the longevity of the industry then it becomes kind of a no-brainer to implement it but for individuals that might have misaligned incentives and would prefer to be following along in this kind of concept of of vote back compliance and and doing what they're told then they have you know different incentives to approval that's been running for 13 years and are focused on the longevity of the network so i think it'll be very interesting to see you know what are the incentives that emerge for people to implement stratum b2 Um, but ultimately i think i think it will come in I, i i don't know when but I think when you look at the kind of future trajectory of the network, it's something that's very, very important. And I think kind of that's what will be the kind of critical factor here, which is why would you shoot yourself in the foot by being greedy over something like this when this could be the kind of thing that ensures the network keeps going for longer?
0: Yeah, I'm going to have to do a Stratum V2 deep dive after this now. <laughs> um, a lot to it.
1: There's a lot to it. And I think, you know, even myself, I, I do my best to try to keep up with everything like this. But I think as we've talked about before, you try your best as an individual, but, you know, the reason you're not sat over there with all of these guys building Stratomy 2 is because you're not, you know, you're not a back-end developer. You know, you don't have the, the C++ or, or the or the programming skills to do it. So all you kind of can do is try to keep up um, and kind of what they are signaling is just as, an, as a miner is just read up on it and try to show your support because it is going to be something that's, you know, pretty integral to keeping things going. Yeah,
0: we'll have to send Jordan over.
1: <laughs> yeah, de- I'll definitely ease the man to go.
0: Um, so okay, so then just like uh, proof of stake, then um, like what's how would you like we touched on mining like proof of work? How would you explain proof of stake? Like how does it compare?
1: Yeah, well, so essentially, in in my mind, proof of stake. Well, what it is is just you're taking uh. monetary value of ethereum and you're you're locking it up in order to become a validator that will give you you know a method to you know construct blocks and participate in the network so in 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 mining and bitcoin um your skin in the game is essentially your your miner it's your energy it's your your infrastructure um but your skin in the game in ethereum um or on sorry proof of stake is the ethereum that you lock up and that's what encourages you to participate um in the correct manner and that's Ethereum's civil mechanism to an extent. So you lock up Ethereum that encourages you to behave in the correct way. If you don't behave in the correct way, other validator nodes in the network will essentially slash your your state contribution. Um, and so that's the manner in which they ensure that you're behaving in the correct manner and constructing blocks as you should. Um, so that's kind of what they've come up with now. They've swapped away from proof of work and the mining process and they've gone on to this proof of stake concept which is contributing tokens locking them up and then getting slashed if you don't behave in the correct manner and that's how they maintain the integrity of their chain of truth now these days
0: yeah so my understanding the problem so just talk around OFAC compliance with proof of work versus proof of stake like my understanding is proof of work is far more robust like in uh censorship resistance um and it's, it's basically just down to the idea that now well if you take the proof of stake side of things that The miners like central not miners the exchanges like other centralized entities are gaining more and more um proportion of the total stake in the network so they decide how transactions how blocks are constructed etc how they're validated um and then the big problem with this is as they get more and more the regulators are going to start regulating the big institutions directly because it's who has the money makes the rules in ethereum basically and if exchanges have the money um, they make the rules is that a correct kind of synopsis might be a bit basic but of the whole thing.
1: yeah no I, I think you've you've kind of hit the nail on the head you know we already talked about you know minor you know maximum extractable value and how their fee structure essentially encourages them to reach out to centralized entities to you know maximize value which are then in turn you know contributing to this problem of off back compliance and then on a higher level as you said which is the more ethereum that you have the more stake you can you know gather and as a result then you become a greater point of failure but i suppose the kind of problem then is because you're then receiving rewards based on your estate it's ultimately just compounding the issue so you know i think that kind of a big problem that i have in my mind is that of course we know that you know ethereum was pre-mined in that the way they kind of spun up the kind of supply of ethereum and distributed it out was almost done kind of on a a BC structure. Um, But irrespective of all of that, you know, I think that Proof-of-Work actually was working in their favor, you know, based on that start that they had. So when people used to give out about Ethereum being pre-mined and allocated to certain funds and certain individuals, I thought Proof-of-Work was... I thought they were lucky that they were on Proof-of-Work because it was almost, you know, taking the power away from those individuals. So, you know, you could get a GPU, you could start mining and you could earn the reward. But what I worry about now is that you've essentially put those people back in the driver's seat because now it's back to this concept of, you know, how much tokens you have. And that dictates, as you alluded to earlier, which is the more money you have, the more stake you can buy off, which essentially is just a shareholder you know, aspect. It's like going back to the kind of traditional finance um, business structure, which I think kind of works against them. And I think another kind of problem that I've seen, and you know, people probably might argue against this, I'm not sure, but... Because it's becoming increasingly difficult, you know, to become a validator. So you need your 33 Ethereum or, you know, you need the technical ability to spin up a validator node. You're just deciding, look, I'll give it to an institution and I'll let them delegate it for me. And I'll let the likes of, you know, a number of exchanges do it on my behalf. That's, again, just contributing to the problem. Whereas on at the moment on proof of work, if you want to go and buy, you know, an S9 for $150 or $100, you plug it into the wall, you connect to a pool um and you're up and running and you're contributing to the kind of civil mechanism of, of, of the bitcoin network um so i think the kind of more barriers to entry that you have in order to contribute to the network adds to the problem of decentralization which i think could be kind of a, a slippery slope that's that's now been started on ethereum and as you said the more centralized entities that you have the more state that they acquire the more that they'll ultimately start to get in rewards and the issue compounds and then as you alluded to earlier it becomes easier and easier to kind of pinpoint someone and say look this is a, a regulated exchange in the us they own this amount of stake um in the network then that's who we're going to go after so you know it, it's, it's definitely a problem and i don't quite see how they stop that slippery slope of, of compliance and stake ultimately coming into the hands of of the wrong people to an extent not the wrong people because there's no kind of i'm you're almost insinuating them that they're trying to do wrong but when you look at the incentives of, of a network you know OFAC compliance shouldn't be top of the list and at the moment you are seeing quite a number a lot of you know a big number of blocks falling under that so i'm not too sure how they stop that
0: yeah i suppose which way it's trending like but um bitcoin's trend towards more decentralization and eth is just creeping the other way so but like exactly what you said there though um just on the last point like the exchanges in the u.s getting closer to well, just you hear him get close to proof of stake with the big exchanges like regulators and all that, like Brian Armstrong, uh, the CEO of Coinbase, he was tweeting it. Someone asked him this on Twitter, like, what would if the regulator went to Coinbase and said that they have to implement um, OFAC compliance on what blocks they're validating? And um, he basically said that what they would do, I think, it, it's paraphrasing now, but he basically said something like he, he wouldn't allow that to happen um because they just they just wouldn't do it they canceled their product but then i i was thinking like well you have a fiduciary obligation to your shareholders to generate the most money as possible this is going to be a massive revenue line so the board is just going to remove him from his position of ceo if he chose to do that so if if that's like Eve's protection against censorship resistance which is brian armstrong saying he's not going to do it like it's
1: bit worrying yeah Yeah, yeah, exactly and i think it just goes back to the incentive structure of proof of stake now which is exactly as you said which is it's it's the money that matters you know what i mean that that's kind of the key thing here it's the money that dictates you know what goes on and shareholders are not going to go along with something like that if you're a public listed company and you're using flashbots, you're getting as much money as you possibly can and you're using flashbots to extract as much value from the process and then they're also operating under OFAC compliance you know there's not really much that an individual in this instance can do you know to an extent so i think coming out and saying that that you're going to stop that as you literally as you said if you have a group of shareholders that are saying look this is becoming a massive income stream for us you know being a validator in this instance we're generating this much revenue a year it's consistent they're just going to go, in my opinion, I think they're just going to go, go along with that. And I think there's very little way to stop them, um, because I think you are in a slippery slope whereby allowing monetary value to dictate how much ownership you have over the network is is definitely a problem. You know, so I think a, a, an example you mentioned earlier very, very briefly is the block size wars and in that individuals for right or wrong reasons want to bring the Bitcoin network in a certain direction. But you had that kind of disparity between miners um, that had you know a lot of hash rate you had exchanges and you had some really kind of og individuals that had a lot of coins um but they had no you know power over the network itself they want you know integrate bigger block sizes but with nodes without any kind of financial incentive or relevance to how much you know bitcoin they own themselves were able to say no we're not going to implement that but with this kind of soft proof of stake you've essentially just jumbled everything together. So you've combined miners, you've combined nodes, you've combined civil mechanisms and consensus mechanisms together all into one, whereby now individuals that essentially have the most money and have the most kind of holdings in that network can now dictate where the network goes, um, which is the problem. The problem there is, you know, as incentives become misaligned and you have people then swinging the power around, saying, look, we have the most tokens so we can dictate where things go irrespective of how this kind of affects this, the little guy in this network that's where we're headed and there's not really much you can do about it um so i kind of think that's a you know a massive problem of proof of stake as you alluded to because no matter what the kind of single intentions of one individual in a company you know if you even translate it to a single you know individual in the network ultimately it's not going to matter because to an extent it's 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 the money talks in this instance which i think is is, is a bit of a problem
0: Yeah, and I suppose, like, it's exactly, um, I think you're spot on there, but I I think it's worth mentioning as well, though, that, like, just in case some people misinterpret the argument here, like, oh, well, I'm definitely not saying, and I don't think you are either, Marx, that, like, OFAC compliance in itself is actually, um, like, say, we're not making any statement as to whether it's a good or bad thing now (laughs) i could go into that but maybe for a different time (laughs) but um the point is that like if bitcoin is to remain a neutral network like proof of work is absolutely fundamental in being a neutral and apolitical money whereas like ethereum with this incentive mechanism is going to trend more and more towards a highly politicized money, which you know i think most people would agree that it's not good for freedom not good for little guy um and it's not why we were all here in bitcoin in the first place um or like be- believing in the fundamentals of the space um i take it you'd agree with that or because <laughs> i spoke for you there
1: <laughs> no yeah well I, exactly as, as you said i just think that it, the whole point of what we're doing is just decentralization centralization anyway which is even if you take away kind of what you mentioned there which is know what is the purpose of a network you know in itself you know is it money is it you know composability and smart contracts um and who dictates where that network goes and i think looking back on the block size wars was a massive win for the small guy you know in bitcoin whereby irrespective of how much wealth or how much coins certain individuals had they had no power over the network they couldn't get something true that some of the big exchanges wanted some of the you know really kind of early adopters of bitcoin wanted because the little guy was able to say no that's not where we're headed but i think the problem is is that if if incentives as i said earlier become misaligned on ethereum you start to wonder you know where is that network headed so you're kind of in a funny situation now whereby people on ethereum are talking about are talking about sharding you know so you're talking about a new incentive structure that Will be the next step and that the current individuals that are partaking in the network might want sharding to go but i don't know if people you know how how much kind of understanding people have of sharding but a sharding will essentially whereby it depends on how the biggest stakers or the biggest holders want it to go so sharding will essentially destroy smart contracts to the best of my knowledge on ethereum um, but if that's where the larger stakers want it to go, that's where it will go. And if that's where it does go, sharding focuses on scalability, and then you're trying to compete as a money. So you've lost your, your smart contract composability feature. Now you're trying to compete as money, which means you're competing with Bitcoin. And now you're a centralized version of money. So you're just like anything else. So, I, I you know, I, I just think the problem is that in becoming more centralized, you're getting in a tug of war. You know whereby individuals that might have misaligned incentives can just start dragging the network in a direction that, you know, the small guy might not want it to go. Um, and I, like in my mind, it's, it's, I think that's quite difficult to stop. Yeah, keep keep it simple and stupid. Like. <laughs> um. Yeah. It's, 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 it's as the more, the more complexity that you add, as I said earlier, the more you open up attack vectors, you know, to the network itself. And I think, the, the, that one of, of sharding for me is something that I'm that I'm focusing on quite a bit on Ethereum, which is if something like that is implemented, and just for a very brief explainer of, of sharding essentially is almost like creating, you know, multiple ledgers on the same network. And the problem is that if you smart the reason it kills smart contracts is that it, it affects composability, which means if something executes on one of those ledgers, it can't interact with a ledger elsewhere. And so that whole kind of mechanism of operating smart contracts completely falls apart. Um, but there is talk of pushing Ethereum in that direction, and I think that's an, an issue with, as you alluded to, which is you need to just keep it simple. Because as soon as you start having these kind of internal tug of wars, that's where things get messy. And I think at least Bitcoin focuses on simplicity. And if you focus on simplicity, longevity, anti-fragility, that's how you get you know a network that sticks, you know, stays together. And that's where I can you know sit here and think, look. I think Bitcoin's going to be here in three decades' time because as much as we keep it simple, it's, you know, anti-fragile. And that's kind of the most important thing, you know, in, in my mind anyway.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um, so, like, j- just to touch on, Mark, um, like, say, Bitcoin and saving the planet and stuff like that. Um, now, I would never... I think you could... Argue this on a number of different levels. I I would actually make the argument that even if you're just buying into the whole climate stuff, um, that bitcoin is actually worth whatever energy it did cost, even if it wasn't uh good for the climate per se, because of the benefits it would bring to humanity. Now that that that's the that's kind of the high level view i take now having said that i appreciate the fact that bitcoin can also absolutely crush the other argument to say that it actually makes a huge difference in incentivizing green and clean tech uh, energy all over the world and like you gave an amazing talk like for anyone that wants to uh look it up If you look up, uh, can Bitcoin help save the planet Bitcoin Collective in Edinburgh, Mark did a talk with a a few other Bitcoiners on the stage, and it's just brilliant around this. Um, But like, if you want to talk, Mark, just a little bit around like Bitcoin and energy usage and how, even though it's portrayed the media as being totally dirty um, and very bad for the environment, how this isn't really the case
1: yeah well so like kind of simple facts just kick things off is that people like to make kind of crude comparisons of of bitcoin's energy use versus nations and whatever it might be so like the simplest kind of facts and figures kick things off which is that the bitcoin network in itself uses less than you know one percent of of the global energy um consumption which you know you wouldn't you think would be a lot lot higher based on on some of the articles that you see but I think kind of the biggest problem with the whole Bitcoin and energy argument is that people obsess over the total consumption of a network, um, as opposed to kind of asking themselves, how can the strategic and innovative use of energy consumption bring about a net positive? So I think Bitcoin aside at the moment, there's a constant negative narrative around Bitcoin or energy consumption, um, assuming that if you're consuming energy, then you're, you're having a negative effect somewhere. Um, But what Bitcoin Mining is showing is that this is basically a location agnostic energy consumer. It can consume energy where any other process can't um, and what that allows you to do is to reduce methane emissions. And how that actually happens is that in a lot of instances, there's a lack of financial incentive to consume energy in a certain location and consume methane in a certain location. And what Bitcoin Mining does it become it comes along and it acts as that perfect constant off-grid buyer um, and so what you're seeing at the moment is that in in america for example bitcoin miners are co-locating themselves on oil and gas fields and they're consuming methane that would otherwise be flared um, and kind of long story short to kind of come back around to your question which is methane mining or methane reduction mining is becoming increasingly popular um, because bitcoin mining as a whole and um, searches for the cheapest and most you know innovative um energy solutions it possibly can which is forcing miners to go for the cheapest energy on the planet which is energy that would otherwise be wasted um, and if this kind of whole industry of methane capture mining continues it's highly possible that we could have you know a carbon negative bitcoin network by the middle of this decade whereby bitcoin mining as an industry is consuming and reducing mi- more emissions than it's actually emitting um but i think it just goes back to you know another key question here which is you know, is Bitcoin mining worth it? Which is a more Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoiner-focused conversation. But I think the biggest problem with it at the moment is that it's 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 a single biggest attack vector. So a lot of the traditional media outlets say, irrespective of what it's used for and and if it's useful or not, it uses too much energy, which is just a very kind of narrow-minded statement which is you know it uses too much energy it's just way too broad of, of a of a kind of statement to come out with whereby they don't you know differentiate between on-grid sites they don't differentiate between off-grid sites they don't differentiate between um methane reduction mining sites they lump it all into one and they just assume that all that consumption is negative um and all the way i'm pretty sure the way that they come up with these transactions or these kind of figures is they say look how much hash rate is there globally how much is that probably consuming? That's, what's, that's what it's consuming. And they don't go out and do any kind of research. They don't do any studies to see, you know, how many oil and gas off-grid miners are there? How many on-grid miners are there? What are they doing in Ireland? What are they doing in Wyoming? You know, what are they doing in Kenya with gridless? They just put it all under one big blanket term. Um, and that the problem is, is that they're the articles that people read. Um, and another kind of massive problem is that they do these calculations whereby they say how much hash rate is there. Okay, that must be consuming that much electricity, and that much electricity translates to this much emissions. And they don't even, you know, look at the back end of what sources of energy a lot of these sites are using. Um, and so that's where you see that you know the really ridiculous headlines um, of comparing, you know, Bitcoin energy use to countries, and then saying that that translates to X amount of CO two. Um, and another really kind of annoying narrative is they related to transactions. So we won't know that. And as we mentioned earlier, and maybe people didn't you know realize this when we mentioned it, but Bitcoin transactions are actually embedded in the blocks themselves. So when a new block appears and it gets mined and a miner guesses or machine guesses that uh the correct code and they allow it to be added, all the transactions that were included in that block are added. They're not separate from that. So you can you can mine an empty block but what a lot of these kind of facts and figures Try do is they take the global you know emissions and quotes that they've calculated, then they calculate how many transactions have occurred, and they try and, and and kind of lead people on to think that when me and you send Bitcoin back and forth, that that emits a certain amount of CO two, and they never once tries you know mention that that block was going to be mined regardless, and that the transactions were actually embedded in the block that was mined regardless, and so a transaction between myself and yourself. Didn't emit any extra CO two at all. Like that, all that narrative is is just completely false. Um, And another one that I've seen the whole time as well is people like Digiconomist saying that ASIC machines. Sorry, I'm kind of going on a a bit of a spiel here to go through all the kind of stuff I see because it's just it's 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 tough to read. But they insinuate that uh, these ASIC machines or the miners, the mining machines, have a lifespan of two years um, because they basically try to translate it to any other technology and so without doing any research they say that look this machine runs for two years and then essentially it gets thrown in the ocean and it's never used again and that translates to x amount of e-waste per transaction you know this is how they do the figures and try relate them for themselves but the, the machines themselves don't die after two years it's all based on the profitability and the strategic use of the machines and i think the best example that i always go back to is that you have the s9 which was a machine created in 2016 um, and it's still running on oil and gas fields seven years later. You know, it, 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 because all that matters is how much Bitcoin you get out and how, what's your electricity cost. So if your electricity cost is zero because you're running off of stranded methane that would have otherwise been flared, you will run that machine until it won't run anymore because anything greater than zero is better than what you're getting anyway. Um, and i think that's something that that, that's so often overlooked and i think especially as intermittent mining and renewable mining increases in popularity you'll have machines that go from high uptime sites which is you know 99 uptime sites which might be biogas or in some instances it could be you know methane reduction sites um as soon as those machines get older and older and slightly less profitable i think they'll be pushed to soakage sites whereby they might sit on a wind farm and only boot up 30 or 40% of the time when prices go negative on that wind farm, which just to kind of go back to the point I'm arguing, their lifespan could be eight or nine years as intermittent machines or soaked site machines. And so these figures of, you know, two years and we all dump our machines and move on to the next best thing are just ridiculous. And I think they, they, they just need to be kind of evaluated and you need to have someone that will come along and say, you know, all those facts and figures are warped, just to say the least. Yeah, that, that's all really excellent points. Um, and
0: just just on what you said there, the, um, the the fact that Bitcoin could actually go carbon negative, i.e. could be better, all its consumption could be better for the environment than not being so for the environment. I are supposed to drill down that a bit more. It's basically because there's a cost um, to the environment associated with producing some types of en- energy like oil and gas flaring where there's a huge environmental cost, it's flared into the atmosphere to get the gas out the ground, and Bitcoin can capture that yeah. and totally use that energy. And then that energy otherwise, that that um, pollution otherwise doesn't go up into the air, which is where the negative energy, um, uh, the negative, what, carbon output uh, comes yeah. from.
1: Essentially Bitcoin mining is the buyer of energy. It's the buyer of last resort. So it's the buyer of energy when no one else wants to be the buyer of that energy. Um, And then it's inadvertently the catalyst for methane reduction, as as you literally just said, which is if you just send methane up into the atmosphere, you flare it off. I think flares are only 91% efficient. So when you actually flare off gas, or essentially you burn it up into the atmosphere. It doesn't always burn off of that all of the gas because of wind or whatever it might be um, and when methane goes into the atmosphere it's 80 times more harmful than, than co2 and so what bitcoin mining is doing is it's being that financial incentive to put a generator in place convert methane to co2 you know create that 80 time reduction in in methane emissions you know when you compare them um, as equivalents um and it's acting as that constant off-grid buyer of last resort you know people A really good phrase is that these guys are unfussy eaters of energy they'll go anywhere in the world you can face them location agnostically and they will consume gas um or energy in any location that, that that's needed and the studies that are being done um are very specifically on you know landfills so landfills around the world flare gas because it's a build-up of methane um as the waste decomposes and obviously oil and gas fields that have to flare at the moment as well um and people what people are saying is that if, if methane reduction mining continues on the trajectory that it's on we'll be consuming more methane and you know reducing more carbon than other participants in the industry are are, are putting out um and exactly as I said earlier will basically be a carbon negative network by then and will be you know undoubtedly um a net positive for the environment, which is. A kind of narrative and it's a kind of concept that people find extremely extremely difficult to understand because i think people ultimately think that any mining farm around the world kind of has a a chimney at the top of it that's emitting black smoke out into the atmosphere and making you know you know a, a seriously harmful effect and not realizing that the strategic and innovative use of this location agnostic fire can lead to a net positive
0: yeah and i suppose like it's as well like the reason these things are going to become so popular and are becoming so popular is because would it be correct to say that like the 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 flaring associated so if bitcoin mining could capture the gas or methane that's flared um that would almost have a negative energy price because they'd have to pay fines and stuff associated with their carbon pollution is that correct
1: yeah well so th- i think at the moment that's that's definitely a part of it and i think those fines will gradually get worse Um so bitcoin mining is a really interesting model in that it's almost providing a revenue stream for gas that you thought was going to cost you money so it's flipping a cost into a revenue stream so uh, in my mind as well it's it's encouraging this rollout at a much much faster pace so if you have to wait for people to be fined for this to be corrected in my mind, it will certainly take a lot, lot longer for it to be corrected than someone come al- coming along to you and saying, "We can turn that into money." You know, that's a, you know a crude kind of kind of way to phrase it. But it's a lot, lot faster to come along to someone and say, "Look, this is going to provide a net positive and a revenue stream to something that will inadvertently be costing you money in months or years to come." Um, so it, you know, it's a, it's kind of a no-brainer for for landfills and oil and gas fields to implement something like this.
0: Yeah, okay. So look, this is coming full circle then to um like you guys are working directly in this industry. Um, you have a big uh anaerobic digestion operation up the north of Ireland. Um yeah, what's the story of all that then? So how are you so this is even I suppose this is different to flaring again from like gas and all that? What how are you guys doing what's different about this compared to flaring and what are you doing up there?
1: yeah so there's kind of a number of models that that we've kind of found as we built the business over the kind of past two years kind of simplest model being is that you'll have biodigesters or anaerobic digesters in place um, that would be exporting to the grid for example um, and over the course of their lifespan there might have been you know a number of instances whereby someone could come along and say can you take this waste and a, an anaerobic digester will say look or an anaerobic digestion plant owner will say i can only export i can only export x amount there's never any incentive for me to produce more energy than i can export um, and what bitcoin mining does is it can come along and now bolt onto that energy asset and provide a constant awkward buyer and um, so in this particular instance it's just offering them you know a faster payback for their renewable asset that will then obviously allow them to go on and invest in further anaerobic digestion sites or whatever it might be. Um, But where it kind of gets into the nitty gritty of the methane reduction side of things is that Bitcoin mining could be the catalyst for a great agnostic rollout of anaerobic digestion in Ireland. So what that actually means kind of in simple terms is that there could be strategic areas whereby an anaerobic digester or a biodigestion plant would be perfect given the amount of waste that is available in a certain area. Um, but the grid could come along and say look it could be three or four years before your grid connected um, and even when that happens you know you'll only be able to export half of what you're planning to produce Um, and so there could be an instance whereby that anaerobic digester or biodigester plant might have to move to a different location um, or it might just not make it the market at all Um, and what I'm trying to demonstrate and what we're trying to demonstrate in here is that essentially what Bitcoin mining can be is that location agnostic buyer of energy for an off-grid AD plant. So if it makes sense, or if the grid is hindering the rollout of a methane reduction technology like biodigestion, because it's not allowing them to onboard the energy that they could create, Bitcoin mining can come along and be the catalyst for faster rollout of this technology. Because so what it'll essentially allow is, it'll allow you to locate biodigestion plants where it makes most strategic sense to consume as much waste as you possibly can, and will essentially make it, you know, grid agnostic. Um, And as I said earlier, it could be a case of mining small scale, completely off grid, you know, with a small um, biodigestion plant, um, or it could just be a case of, again, being a bolt on. So you could have a site that farmers in the area, or there could be, you know, a dairy processing plant, or whatever it might be, Um, could contribute enough waste to an anaerobic digestion plant to produce a megawatt Um, but the grid might come along and say look you can only export 750 Um, and so instead of these plants having to either take in less waste um, which will obviously have to be disposed of elsewhere they can now go ahead and say well look we'll take as much waste as we possibly can because we have this off-grid buyer for it anyway and so they'll continue exporting as normal and then there'll be Bitcoin will just be an anchor tenant um, as Obi kind of described before in that talk with regarding gridless compute. It's something that people assume won't apply to Ireland, but it really does in that this whole concept of off-grid anchor tenants will be a really kind of integral part in my mind for the financial economics of these sites stacking up um, as you look towards the rollout. So Ireland has a plan now, which is really good news that they announced in the past couple of weeks, which is we plan to build 130 Um, anaerobic digestion plants across Ireland Um, but in my mind the last thing you want is grid connections hindering the pace of that rollout Um, or the amount that or the amount of energy that these things could produce or the kind of financial economics of them and what Bitcoin mining could do is make that rollout you know grid and location agnostic Um, so I think there's definitely kind of a, a market for it being an energy asset bolt on as well as just being the only buyer of energy in, in isolated or rural locations.
0: Yeah, so what you're saying there, basically, you you could say to whoever's in charge of that rollout, look, you guys don't even need to think about, because they're doing it for environmental reasons here in Ireland, Like, so it's- um, Yeah,
1: it's a mix, exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah, so, there you could say look you guys don't even need to bother about uh connecting to the grid we could just get these mining operations all over ireland and then that will gobble up all the e- electricity and then it reduce the emissions um from methane as would the anaerobic digestion process
1: yeah exactly so you, all you want to do and in my mind is just take away as many kind of barriers to entry as possible for these plants um and i think you know when i've spoken to people about smaller scale anaerobic pro, you know plants um you know kind of 50 to 100 kilowatts um it is the kind of interaction with the grid system that can be quite a hindrance for either finding a buyer for the energy so a key part of the payback is your ability to export and if you're told it's going to be a, a long number of years before you can export you're just not going to go ahead with the with the implementation of that plant which means waste continues to be spread on land, on farms around the country, whatever it might be. Um, and so in my mind, Bitcoin mining here is just a catalyst to make that rollout more efficient, whether it be on the larger scale model, you know, off taking energy that can't be exported and making the payback, you know, faster for these individuals. Um, or it could be, you know, a really key factor whereby it could be, the, you know, the kind of make or break between, a, you know, a plant making it to a certain location or not. Um, and ultimately, you want to make the life of, of kind of the, Farmers, just take farmers as an example here, as easy as possible. Because if the rollout of biogas plants is limited to um, the grid system, that ultimately leads to you know going back to Bitcoin here, centralization, whereby you might be asking farmers or individuals to travel a certain distance—that's you know quite a big distance—in order to provide waste to this plant, um, in order to you know generate electricity. But of course, the process of Bringing that waste from one location to that centralized plant also emits emissions as well. So you don't want people traveling, you know, just take an example, two hours with a truck to put waste into an AD plant, because then that's also emitting emissions in itself. You want to strategically locate these plants in the areas where it makes most sense to consume as much waste as possible um, and also reduce emissions as much as you possibly can.
0: Yeah that's really insightful so
1: and then look there's even more benefits that
0: we could i suppose we talk for hours on this stuff really but um you could talk about like uh like there's load balancing on the grid um all that kind of stuff and then there's like you know there might be potential for so someone was talking to me about this recently they they said like you could you now I'd say logistics. This is an absolute nightmare. Um, wouldn't work very easily. But just the the example of stands. Um, and I'm not sure how viable it would be. Maybe one day. But like you could hypothetically put the Empire State Building. You could cover it with solar panels. You could put Bitcoin miners then in the basement, and you could heat the heat the whole building from the solar panels and have and have Bitcoin output as well. Like at the end of the day, um, is that something like that possible, or is that totally crazy talk?
1: well like it's, it's definitely possible but i think something that like something that's interesting there that like that you were kind of mentioning earlier as well um is this kind of idea of, of load balancing it's something kind of worth mentioning whereby i've had people say to me look you know you can't do this here because you're going to take energy from the grid that could be used elsewhere and you know you're just going to be kind of a net negative for for people elsewhere and um, Kind of a key part of the mining industry, and it's something that the EU is is really really missing in their whole kind of understanding of the market. So let's go back to the example I gave earlier, which is you have an anaerobic digestion plant that at the moment exports five hundred kilowatts. They get offered more waste, and that that allows them to ramp up to seven hundred kilowatts. So what they do is they reach out to Skilling. We put in a container, and we sit there happily consuming the extra two hundred kilowatts for however long let's say that the grid does improve over the course of the four or five years that we're running and now they can export the full 700 what bitcoin mining does then is essentially becomes a controllable load resource Um, and so instead of being on 99 percent of the time like we were we'll essentially become a profit maximizing strategy for the ad plants, whereby they will cycle between mining and exporting um when the grid needs it or doesn't need it and so you'll essentially get paid to be it's called a grid ancillary so mining will operate you know during the night you know from 11 pm till 8 am in the morning if the grid needs the energy you'll shut off you'll like sell that energy back to the grid the ad plants will then be arbitraging the cost that the grid is willing to provide and the revenue that the miners is able to provide and i think what some people don't realize is that in reality, mining, especially in Ireland, with the price of on-grid electricity, will never, ever, ever be able to compete with the price of on-grid electricity. Um, and as a result of that, it isn't you know, something that will cause you know negatives on the grid. So the EU at the, came out recently um, and essentially said, look, we're thinking of banning mining in the EU because we need to free up energy um, in order to provide it back to the grid. Or the, the, I think the narrative they said is Bitcoin mining is, is using too much on-grid electricity in Europe right that was what they kind of put the narrative out there and that's a lot of articles that i saw but in reality mining needs the cheapest electricity on the planet and so mining will never ever ever be able to compete with a grid system like in europe so people are saying look we're going to step in um, and we're going to say that miners must turn off because there's such an energy crunch in europe at the moment but anyone who has any understanding of mining knows that a miner will shut off at five or six cents a kilowatt hour And the prices, you know, the average price of electricity across Europe is at minimum, you know, 12 plus. And so miners will be long gone before there's any kind of competitive nature occurring between miners consuming and the grid needing the energy because it just doesn't stack up. So mining is one of the most competitive industries in the world. The last thing you need is someone to try to step in and interact with that market and tell people to turn off because by the time you knock on the door and say to a miner, you need to turn off. You know the grid needs the energy that miner was turned off you know weeks before and i think that's what you're seeing in in europe which is them trying to blame somehow trying to blame bitcoin mining um but with prices at you know 20 cents a kilowatt hour plus there literally isn't a soul that would be mining on on the grid system um and so that's what i'm trying to tell people as well which is they're saying oh well will you turn off you know you'll probably refuse to turn off when the grid improves um and, and essentially my logic is no we won't you know bitcoin mining is kind of the perfect ancillary for the grid it will switch off as soon as the grid needs it because what the grid needing it means is that there'll be an increase in price and as soon as that increase in price materializes any ad plant that can export the energy instead of mining is just going to shut the mining off and send it back you know so i think bitcoin mining has a harmonious relationship with energy grids and energy systems not a negative relationship um and i think that whole narrative it's getting particularly bad now again coming into the winter in europe whereby the eu is trying to say look we're gonna we're gonna ban proof of work mining to kind of free up onward electricity you have every single miner around the world thinking god their prices is, is the last places i'd go to mine um but they don't quite get that and so i think that will be kind of a pretty important thing for us in here to be demonstrating and explaining to people as well 100 we'll have to get you know like euro
0: news or something yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah well like it, it's interesting I don't, the question, like the interesting was like the kind of funniest part for me about that as well as that obviously i was in strasbourg a couple of weeks ago talking to members of parliament about this and you know they the, the, the kind of frustrating thing for me is that they did get it you know they they were they were nodding and saying okay I actually get your point around the price of electricity and how it's a hugely competitive market and that general price of electricity will push out mining naturally and that offward mining is a net positive to emissions. And then fast forward three weeks and the article came out saying, you know, the EU is pushing ahead with its plan to, it's not even ban proof of work. Now the wording has slightly changed. They are kind of saying, look, we're just going to ask people to switch off when, you know, the price of electricity, if it gets too high. And, you know, as I said earlier, the mining market will naturally regulate itself because it's the most competitive market in the world, the last thing they need to do is step in. And and you're already seeing, you know, the really, really kind of tough articles to read, which is the EU plans to support, you know, better energy uh, proof-of-work systems like proof-of-stake, you know, and we're going to support proof-of-stake systems because, you know, they reduced their carbon footprint by 99.99% when they got rid of the mining process. But you talk to anyone, you know, that has a good understanding of, of GPU mining, and the vast majority of those, those those miners that were mining Ethereum went straight to mining, you know, something else or, or doing a different process. So this kind of whole emissions reduction and, and energy reduction that, you know, Ethereans talk about didn't actually materialize. Um, and as I said, as we've literally already discussed, if Bitcoin mining can go carbon negative in the next three or four years and be a net positive, then I think they're going to kind of really struggle to have a leg to stand on, you know, with that argument. You know, how can you come along and say something that's reducing emissions is something that needs to be banned? So, you know, it's good to see that we're moving in that direction as well. Not because I really think it matters, but I think it's because it removes attack vectors against the network itself, which I think is, you know, an important thing that we should be looking at as well. Yeah, it's just, I suppose, it's political posturing
0: combined with, like, the state attack as well that's starting to build so yeah look great stuff keep keep trying to and, and do you think like I, I suppose do you think it is worth talking to them like um there is nice, like lobbying like it is obviously beneficial do you think it could be an effective mechanism
1: yeah, I think I definitely think it's it's worthwhile, you know, because it would be a shame if if you have to overcome, if you knew the kind of benefits that Bitcoin mining could bring um, and you saw a kind of ban or negative connotations constantly being spun up. Um, and I think like a lot of the reactions that I saw was it uses too much energy. You know, that, that line, I'm seeing it in the newspapers and then I'm seeing them repeat it to me back, you know, again, because that's what they're being told and that they mm-hmm. think that any form of mining has to be in a large data center that consumes energy 24/7 and is nothing but negative. And so, when I was able to bring up a video and show them a video of our container running on a farm, you know, in math they did said, "Oh, I didn't realize that you could stick a couple of machines in a small box and consume whatever energy is available." You know, they were thinking, "I assume it had to be at least you know 10 megawatts. It had to be a big data center." I didn't realize that you could strategically locate bitcoin mining you know operations and that's literally what this entire you know carbon negative movement is and oil and gas mining and landfill mining it's the strategic use of this consumption whereby you can stick in 120 kilowatts and it will consume all of that energy no matter where you put it um and so i think that's that's you know an, an important step which is i definitely think it's worthwhile to be honest i think not doing it is just kind of letting all the positive steps that we're making go to waste um, and even when i apply it to kind of an irish example which is you have irish you know data centers topping quite a lot of stick at the moment for their on-grid consumption and that they're you know always consuming um when other people are struggling for energy and energy prices are going up and i think that's the kind of key defining factor between bitcoin mining um and those kind of data centers is that Bitcoin mining is a perfectly interruptible process, and a lot of these traditional data centers aren't. So you'll see announcements whereby a data center will say they're being built in the outer Dublin area. You know they're contributing funding to a nearby wind farm, and um, they're going green. You know, and they're making a net. You know, they're they're facilitating the onboarding of more renewables, um, and so that's why they're positive. But you know, of course, as soon as those renewables aren't producing, if the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing those guys keep pulling off the grid you know and then that's where they're you know having a net negative um effect whereas the joy of bitcoin mining is that if you had a very very similar model whereby Ireland pushed towards allocating some of this space to bitcoin mining as soon as those renewable um operations aren't producing anymore the bitcoin miners would simply shut off you know that's kind of a key part of this which is this whole idea of renewable energy and and intermittent mining um, and flexible load balancing is a huge part of ERCOT in Texas. Um, And I think Ireland could actually move in a similar manner. So, of course, we're going to have our battery storage systems. Of course, we're going to have, you know, synchronous condensers and all of these other mechanisms to keep the grid balanced. But one method of keeping our grid balanced could be allocating some of our data center space to a flexible load like Bitcoin mining. But, you know, we both know that that's, you know, a long long way away and so starting kind of in a, a much much smaller manner and first of all you know going after the methane reduction market is definitely the easiest way to start
0: yeah well look i suppose the great thing is that even if they do try and hinder it for a year or two like seeing how successful it is in america and like some other parts of the world like you know, game theory should come into play and it should be kicked back the other way then. So that, that the same way that, like, they tried to, they delayed the whole tech scene in Europe for a long time and it eventually just washed on in, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think, and as you said yourself, like, the US is, is really flying ahead at the moment. You know, you have Wyoming, you know, you have all these other, you know, you have states all over the US That are encouraging miners to come. You know, the CEO of Aircot, Brad Jones, there at one stage saying, you know, miners are operating as this perfectly flexible load on our grid, allowing us to onboard more renewables. And you'll keep seeing these stories come out, no matter how long it takes the EU to kind of change their tune. Um, And in the meantime, if you took an example whereby all of on grid mining was banned in Europe, you know, it's going to do absolutely nothing <laughs> you know that's the kind of key you know conclusion that they're going to come to which is if we ban mining on the grid in europe and we fast forward two years and they say okay well what happened the price of electricity after that um and how many miners switched off the answer is probably going to be the price of electricity is the same or higher and no miner switched off because no one was doing it anyway um i think that will be kind of a you know a key turning point as well which is if they continue to push through with stuff like this that doesn't actually have a lot of meaningful difference or change, you know, in the background of why they're doing it, I think they'll ultimately kind of come back and say, you know, why did we do it at all? Um, And so that's hopefully why, you know, we'll be stuck in the middle of it and, you know, hopefully advising to an extent saying, you know, you're going to ban something that will be a net positive and you're going to ban it and it's going to make absolutely no difference to the current existing systems that we have. So, you know, why progress with something like this? Um, But only, you know, only time will tell, we'll see
0: hopefully um so look just to wrap up then mark uh geez, thanks for your time we've kind of i think we've gone way over <laughs> um, but uh like um just then yeah i just ask this question to everyone um like what would you do you think there's any this is totally unrelated now to mining and all that but where well, it might be i'm not sure do you think there's anything that needs to be built in Bitcoin that isn't being built at the moment in the space in general? Like is there anything you'd like to see anything you feel you've a burning need for that's just not there?
1: Like I suppose a, a a big part at the moment and it's something that Really springs to mind for me is is just this the concept of um You know holding your own keys and you know wallet solutions like it's something that everyone goes back to it's something that you know I think isn't that difficult, but maybe something that we need to encourage more people to take to self-custody their bitcoin um i think to be honest that's a you know a crucial part but i think aside from building something physical i think just informing people on you know keep informing people on the difference between bitcoin and some of the other projects out there and actually understanding what it is that they're investing you know that's not a product but i think if you look at the past kind of six to 12 months it would have been something that's pretty important for a lot of people to understand before they came in and and dabbled maybe as much as they did in a number of other projects, but okay, if, if you forget that, a key reason a lot of people lost a lot of money recently is because they left their crypto on exchanges. You know, even if you look, you know, let's just forget Bitcoin for a second. People lost a lot of money because they didn't know how to self custody. You know what the, what what they thought they owned, um. And so I think you know coming up with solutions or even again going back to education and informing people on how they can self custody their coins is probably what comes to mind for me. You know maybe i'll probably think of something else now you know over the next day or two that comes to mind but but just given everything that goes on i think it's quite hard to to think of anything else other than self-custody solutions um, and making self-custody solutions as simple as possible for people to implement on their own Q. fediment <laughs> yeah well you get into fediment and area you'll have to get obi on at some stage talking about fediment because he'll be here for another four hours after i leave if you did
0: <laughs> yeah you'll, you'll
1: have to introduce me if you don't mind
0: i'd love to have one. all but <laughs> yeah. well, it'll be the next one it'll be the next one so <laughs> all right then mark look this has been brilliant very very insightful i uh, hope everyone found it useful as well so um where can we find you and what's, what's next for skilling
1: yeah well, it was worth finding us i suppose our, our website is skillingmining.com um our twitter is at skilling underscore mining or I got that wrong recently, actually. It's our Twitter is at Skilling Mining as well. Um, and I suppose what, what's, what's next for, for Skilling is just to try get, you know, more meaningful mining operations up and running. Um, so there, there, there's a few things that hopefully I'll be able to, let people know about you know in the coming weeks and months that we're working on um but i suppose a key, a key focus for us is is just continuing with this whole kind of methane reduction um mining kind of movement um and just showcasing that you know bitcoin mining can have really meaningful contributions in a, in a positive way for emissions and environment, um, and all of those different things and so that's where we're headed next is just hopefully more operations around ireland And then as a result of that hopefully more education on bitcoin and mining in ireland because i think there's there's you know a lot of noise in the space at the moment and i think unfortunately bitcoin is is the boring thing that a lot of people overlook and then if you go on to mining you know mining is another six steps past just you know what is bitcoin and so hopefully as we get more mining operations up and running here and people start realizing that you know it can be a net positive they'll become a bit more inquisitive themselves. And, you know, ideally for us, Ireland then becomes a bit more of a a Bitcoin mining hub and a bit more of a hub in general. Because, you know, as as we kind of spoke, you know, at the the Edinburgh conference, there's a lot of meetups and there's a lot of talk about Bitcoin um, and Bitcoin mining across the UK at the moment. So, you know, it'd be kind of great to see Ireland kind of put their name on the map as well. Um, And so hopefully, you know, Skilling will be right in the middle of all that.
0: Yeah, I suppose like you have the initial Bitcoin rabbit hole of like the hardest freedom orientated money that's just going to change everything and then when you go down far enough you actually start really realizing like Jesus this is really good for energy as well like so
1: yeah um, it's it's never-ending it's never-ending exactly and as, as a kind of key point there which is sometimes where people get stuck on Bitcoin especially if they're kind of environmentally focused is this kind of whole idea of energy consumption Um, And unfortunately, when they type in, you know, Bitcoin mining, energy consumption, it's I won't name any certain outlets, but there are a lot of outlets and a lot of individuals are the first things that come to the fore and they're all negative related. Um, And so if I can kind of be in the background there showcasing that it can be a positive, that will hopefully get more people over that hurdle, which is if they stop at mining or Bitcoin because it's proof of work is negative for the environment, they're given a different kind of alternative route and an alternative kind of learning um standpoint which could be the key difference between them sticking in the space or not send them to this podcast with, yeah well hopefully yeah this is exactly hopefully this will be a kind of deep dive for them and allow them to to go from kind of no idea of what's going on to to proof of work is is going to save the planet in quotes <laughs> as they label their talk in edinburgh as.
0: <laughs> yeah okay then mark look this has been brilliant so um we'll have to get you back again in a, a couple of months and see how you're getting on Looking forward to it, Jack. Nice one. Thanks, man. Brilliant stuff.